welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by Flag Taylor, professor at Skidmore College, my friend and collaborator, and we are going back to the issue of communism. We are recording this for the 50th anniversary of the Prague Spring, and we have found a HBO miniseries made by Oscar-nominated director Agnieszka Holland, a veteran, a famous Polish director who got her start working for Zanussi and Andrzej Wajda before she emigrated to the West. She made films in Hollywood and has directed for prestigious TV series as well, like The Wire. And she has recently turned to movies that deal with totalitarianism. She has a movie about the Holocaust, which was very famous and was Oscar-nominated, In Darkness, She is now finishing a movie about Gareth Jones, the British journalist who traveled to the USSR in the interwar years and learned about the Soviet horrors. And in between, in 2013, she directed this three-part series that you can find on HBO or stream it on Amazon Prime called Burning Bush, a reference, of course, to Moses and God and Exodus. This is the story of Jan Palach, the man who burned himself in 1969 in Prague, in Venceslav Square, in protest against Soviet tyranny after the forces of the Warsaw Pact led by Brezhnev's Soviet Russia invaded Czechoslovakia. Flag, thank you for joining me. It is an important thing, I think, to talk about the Prague Spring again, and the 50th anniversary is, of course, the perfect occasion for it. And you are, among other things, a scholar of totalitarianism with a special interest in Czechoslovakia. So it's an honor to have you join me again. Well, I'm glad to be back and really glad to talk about this wonderful film, Burning Bush. I think in terms of films about communism, I would put it in a close second place to the lives of others. It's too bad because of the fact that it aired on Czech TV first. It was not allowed to compete in the Academy Awards. And because of its length, I think the three episodes total about four hours. It has not been seen by enough people, in my view. It deserves a really, really wide audience. It's a great film. I blogged about it back in 2014 for National Review. And so it's great to be back to talk about this wonderful movie. Yeah, that's how I heard about it from your essays, and we will link those essays to our posts about this podcast. But for now, the movie starts in January of 69, after the Prague Spring, with the self-immolation of Jan Palach. It is the opening sequence, and it is, of course, shocking. We are as unprepared as viewers as, of course, people who saw it happen and heard about it later on the news were. It is completely unprepared, and then there is this long, long struggle, legally, morally, politically, to understand what does this mean? Why does this matter? Who is this young man? What did he do? What does this mean for Czechoslovakia? But before we get to the emulation, the titles show us footage of the Prague Spring and of the Soviet invasion of August 68. So we should start with the Prague Spring itself. First of all, how politically did Czechoslovakia change? Well, there was a movement really within the upper echelon of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia to reform 
there were some top economists and other people interested in trying to moderate communism to allow some moderate market mechanisms to operate within the state. And so the Prague Spring really starts as a movement within the upper echelon of the party. And so the initial moment worth noting is the election of Alexander Dubček, the figurehead of this reform movement within the party. He was elected to the Central Committee in January of 1968, along with some of his more reform-minded colleagues. And so this initially signaled to the Soviets that they should be worried because, of course, they thought Czechoslovakia might be on a path similar to that of Yugoslavia a few decades before, that they would strike out on their own and try to do things a little bit differently. And Dubček fairly quickly made it clear that he would allow all sorts of changes to affect Czechoslovak society, including freedom of the press. Gradually, censorship and repression of rights of freedom of association and freedom of the press slackened, weakened, was tested, and over a few months disappeared, making possible the Prague Spring. So somehow this whole thing that started in the Central Committee of the Communist Party escaped their control and turned into a social movement. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Part of it was, as you say, ignited by Dubček and the acknowledgement by certain leaders in the society that interesting things were happening. It encouraged them to think about how they might want to change things and how they might want society to adapt to the new circumstances within the upper echelon of the party. But I would also say that some of the broader societal currents were the continuation of things that had started, I would say, in the mid-60s during the de-Stalinization campaign. And so although censorship really did end in the spring of 68, censorship had been relaxed. Travel was much easier in the mid-60s. A lot of people in Czechoslovakia, especially in Prague, were able to travel to the West, spend a few months, say, in Paris, and then come back. And so there was just more contact with the West, more knowledge about what was happening in the West. Interesting plays were performed. Novels were published. There was a famous Writers' Union Congress in 1967, where a playwright named Pavel Kahot, who would later be one of the leaders of the Charter 77 movement, he actually read one of Solzhenitsyn's speeches. And so there were things bubbling up already before 1968. But once Dubček's reform movement within the party started, that really encouraged a much broader movement that included workers and different sectors of society. And so by the spring of 1968, as you say, there were rallies, there were interesting manifestos being published. There was a famous manifesto called 2000 Words. And I'll just read you one brief paragraph from a memoir by a woman named Hedda Kovali. She will give you a lovely sense of what Prague was like during this time. So she writes, the spring of 1968 had all the intensity, anxiety, and unreality of a dream come true. People flooded the narrow streets of Prague's old town and the courtyards of Hadrani Castle and stayed out long into the night. If anyone set out for a walk alone, he would soon join a group of others to chat or tell a joke, and we would all listen with relief as the ancient walls echoed with the sound of laughter. Even long after the castle gates closed, people would remain standing on the ramparts, looking down at the flickering lights of a city that could not sleep for happiness. 
that really gives you a sense of how things really were utterly different than they had been a few years earlier. And again, her description does not sound like people living in the midst of a totalitarian regime, right? It really does seem like a society that is on the verge of some transformation. And so in a sense, the Soviets were right to be worried. There was a real thirst for change. And so it really is no surprise in the end that the Soviets sent something close to 150,000 troops into the country in August. Not only their own troops, there were Polish troops and troops from different Warsaw Pact countries. I think the total is something like 150,000. Yeah, you have these parallel developments. On the one hand, Dubček is talking about socialism with a human face. He's saying, we're not going to condemn the past, but we have achieved socialism, so we don't have to have repression and tyranny anymore. And he's even suggesting that in future, more organization and eventually elections on a 10-year timeline are going to be organized again. And this, of course, worries and angers Brezhnev terribly, although he had originally supported his election to the Central Committee when he realized how unpopular the previous incumbents were. But in parallel with Dubček's own ideas about making socialism more human, more open, you have this social movement. For example, in 68, for a few brief months, the most popular periodical in the whole of Europe was in Czechoslovakia. It is called Literarni Listi, literary papers. It's just a magazine. But this sold more than 300,000 issues. It had been at the forefront of the fighting against censorship in early 68. And when there was no repression from Dubček, it became more and more popular, bolder and bolder, publishing all sorts of new ideas, including criticism of the regime. And all of a sudden, Czechoslovakia had a kind of social and intellectual and political life a dialogue that was conducted in public between people who appealed to the people in a serious, honest, sort of democratic way. So you can understand how this euphoria was based on real events. Yeah, and I would also add society got way ahead of the leaders within the party. No one in the party ever even considered giving up the leading role of the party. But I think there were murmurs in society, rather, about that prospect. And so that really scared even the reformers, I think. And the prospect for reform without giving up that central element of a one-party state is always going to be pretty dim. And so in that sense, society, even though it came to this movement after the party leaders had, it really got far out ahead of those leaders very, very quickly. Yeah. And as it became obvious to Brezhnev that Dubček was either not in control of events or didn't even want really to repress Czechoslovak society, the troops were prepared and on the night of August 20th, 21st, the Warsaw Pact troops invaded Czechoslovakia, very quickly occupied Prague. You can find clips online of this sort of hallucinating normality where you just see people lining the streets sort of like on parade, but there are Soviet tanks parading down the streets of Prague right, and right. The troops marching in full battle gear. It's both normal and shocking at the same time. Dubček was arrested with the rest of his reform-minded associates. They were taken to Moscow in a military plane, re-educated. They signed an agreement that what Brezhnev was doing was perfectly all right. Before he was taken from Czechoslovakia, he publicly said that there should be no resistance so that there would be no bloodshed. 
and he was brought back to Czechoslovakia a shadow of himself. In Burning Bush, he is treated as a kind of noble victim. He seems superior morally to his Soviet conquerors, and he seems to have earned the love of the Czechoslovak nation precisely because he had tried to stand up to a monstrous regime and was destroyed by it. Dubček's later career was, of course, ignominious. He was sent briefly back and was, for another year or so, leading the Central Committee. Then he was sent as ambassador to Turkey. Perhaps they hoped he would defect and ruin his reputation in Czechoslovakia. But he didn't, and so he was recalled and turned into a private citizen. He worked in a forestry service. Yeah. The people thought well of him, and after Czechoslovakia was liberated in 89 and communism was over, he was restored to a kind of public function in the federal legislature. For a few brief years, he died in 92, to show a kind of appreciation and gratitude of the nation, and that his 68 movement has some place in the history of the coming of freedom to Czechoslovakia. And with his destruction, normalization started. Hardliners in the Central Committee took over and imposed censorship again, arrests, repression, and this is how we get to January of 69. Yeah, that's right. The viewers of the film should know that the events of the film take place really between these moments of the Prague Spring and the onset of normalization in earnest. One example, just to give you a flavor of the extent of repression and suffocation during the normalization regime, Gustav Husak is installed in April 69. And I think starting in 1970-71, they start this massive screening campaign. And so they interviewed something like 1.6 million rank-and-file party members. One of the things you had to do during these interviews to retain your position in the party was to affirm the uh, fraternal assistance of the Soviet army, right? You had to sign something like the Moscow Protocol that Dubček signed that sort of suggests that Czechoslovakia itself invited the Soviets in to help them deal with societal change. And so you had almost a million people who had their party membership either completely revoked or a more moderate version of that was canceled. And this leads to a lot of dissatisfaction. And these people who had their party membership revoked, some of them turn out to be the leaders of the Charter 77 movement. So that's an important context for Burning Bush. Yes, and of course, being thrown out of the party meant the loss of job opportunities, of safety in certain cases. It made you a social pariah, and it endangered your ability to provide for your family. Right, right. Yeah, all these guys who had their party memberships revoked, they were soon stoking coal in the basements of buildings or picking up trash on the streets of Prague. And so it was quite a demotion in a way. And this is how we get to Jan Palach, who was a 20-year-old student in Prague, who in January of 69, without any warning, without anyone knowing anything about his ideas really, went to Venceslas Square and set himself on fire. People were shocked, people tried to save him, to put out the fire and call in the ambulances, and he was in the hospital for a while, and... This burned man, whose fate is still uncertain, is the dramatic focus of the first episode. We start with this incomprehensible gesture that somehow is supposed to speak up for human dignity. We do not think of suicide as an affirmation of human dignity, because we're not Romans, for example. 
And so it is deeply disturbing, of course, for Christians, especially who are against suicide on principle. This is even harder to stomach, but this gesture immediately sets the whole of Czechoslovakia in motion. As people hear about it, they're shocked and social unrest begins. At the same time, the police forces and the state security, of course, have to get a hold on the matter. Who is this guy? What did he do? Are others going to do it? What is going to happen? And so we see Jan Palach's family, his fellow students, we see the police, of course, we see street movements, protests, arrests, we see the entire social turmoil and the threat of a revolution starting because of the gesture of this one man. And we never learn much about who he was. We learn what he meant to Czechoslovakia what he revealed about the society and how the people and the communist party fought over what his legacy would be yeah jan Palak week took place in january of 89 and this is a series of protests that eventually led to the arrest of people like vaclav havel and so that jan Palak week ends up being an important moment that spurs much of the societal movement in Prague in 89. And so Pollock and his memory and his deed ended up having important echoes and influences long after the deed itself was over with. And from the point of view of the movie, the title Burning Bush is of course a reference to the burning bush that Moses saw where God reveals himself and promises the Jews an escape from slavery and the future of freedom. It's, of course, shocking again to think of this burning bush as the burning man, the self-immolating Jan Palach, the hero of Czechoslovak freedom, a man who thought that slavery to the Soviet-imposed regime was worse than death. Now, that is a shocking attitude, of course. But Agnieszka Holland does very well to show that there is some religious element to the reverence in which people held and the power he had to create such turmoil in society because people realized immediately what a thing it is to take your own life in political protest and all of a sudden this revealed how politics hits us in our core that if you live in a regime where there can be no justice there can be no human dignity either Yeah, that's right. And I think she does a wonderful job of capturing the ways in which life was pretty normal for a lot of people under this regime. Even after the Soviet invasion, people are trying to recalibrate and get back to a decent life after the horrors of this invasion. And so we see Dasha and her husband. She's a lawyer. He's a doctor. They have two young daughters. We see Major Yuresh, who's a decent, honest cop. We see lots of students who are going to Charles University and taking classes and educating themselves. And so in a sense, as I say, things seem okay. And this um, jumps off your remark just a moment ago. One thing the Pollock immolation does is kind of shake people back into trying to reflect on whether the status quo really is tolerable, right? If he's willing to do that, if he's willing to burn himself, you know, where should I draw the line in my own life? So I think the ripple effects of the immolation, as you say, are hard to measure, but they were pretty profound for a long time, but they were very profound, obviously, right after the event itself. And by the way, there's a wonderful, haunting memorial to the spot where Pollock immolated himself today at the top of uh, Venceslas Square, and it's very much worth visiting. 
so just like the first episode is dominated by the enormity of this gesture and its power to ignite perhaps a revolution in Czechoslovakia, the next two episodes deal with the fight between the authorities and the family of Jan Palach and their friends for the legacy of Jan Palach. Will people be allowed to acknowledge this, to remember him? And so the question of human dignity comes up in this direct way that changes the lives of all the people involved. One of the important Communist Party members, a man called Willem Novi, makes slanderous speeches in the Communist legislature of Czechoslovakia, saying that this was all a show, that Jan Palach didn't want to ignite himself, he was just trying to use a kind of circus fire to scare people, but somehow a mistake led to his immolation, that he was no kind of hero, that it was all some kind of attempt to influence Czechoslovak affairs, and of course that it somehow tied up with foreign influences. And this leads the family of Jan Pala, his brother and his mother, to try to sue this important, powerful communist party member who was close with the Soviet occupants in order to defend the honor of dead Jan Pala. It's a slander suit. Yeah, it's a testimony to the skill with which Holland directs the film that once the film turns into a courtroom drama, it gains in dramatic tension. You really wonder if the suit is going to be successful. Dasha and her fellow lawyers are very diligent in gathering evidence, some of which is very damning and very powerful. And so it turns into what American audiences would recognize as a courtroom drama, of course, in the context of a regime that doesn't have much respect for the rule of law. But I think it's also important to emphasize, and I think the film does a wonderful job with this, that communist regimes needed the pretense of these forms and formalities in order that people would tolerate their rule. And so they couldn't completely dispense with lawyers and courtrooms and lawsuits and the like. They had to preserve these forms, but of course not allowing those forms any integrity on their own. And so even though we have the sense from the beginning that the lawsuit can't and won't be successful, it's still important that those forms and formalities are important and people cling to them, right? People really need them and recognize them as something that they will cling to even knowing that they're hollow in the end. Yes, you're right. This is a very important thing that not even after the Soviet invasion are the communists willing to rule simply by naked terror and to simply abolish the constitution and the laws. And this is what the family of Jan Palach uses in order to assert at some level his dignity, so that officials cannot publicly lie about who he was and what he did. Part of this recalls, of course, ancient tragedy where people will, over somebody's death, over a corpse's humanity, start an entire crisis. And this is what the family of Jan Palach does, and they find allies precisely because there are people who realize that at some level they're not willing to live by lies. Right. And that, of course, turns out to be the crucial importance of justice for human beings. If we live together, then at some level we have to be allowed to tell the truth, or else we cannot be human beings. Right. Yeah, and the way that I like to think about this, there's a nice parallel in the story. Initially, the Pollocks come to Dasha's office and ask her to take this case, and she initially refuses 
she thinks it's utterly futile and kind of a waste of time and will only bring lots of horrors down upon them. And what she tells the Pollocks is that nothing someone like Novi can say can diminish the significance of Jan's act. She wants to say the deed stands for itself. It doesn't matter what people say about it. And then when she changes her mind, there's this lovely conversation between Dasha and her husband, Radim. And what she says to Radim about why she changes her mind and decides to take the case is that they tell their children, their two daughters all the time, that they shouldn't lie. But what are those words if she can't bring herself to act in accordance with those principles? And so in each case, you see this mismatch between deed on the one hand and words or speeches on the other. And so Dasha decides that deeds and speeches have to match, that the speeches about Pollock have to reflect his deed, and her own conduct has to reflect the speeches that she makes to her daughters. And so that's the moment when she changes her mind and decides to take the case, even though I think she has a sense that this probably won't turn out well for anyone. Although I don't think she has any sense that it would get as bad as it does. Yes, And it's important, again, to emphasize that this is a real story. Dasha eventually became a kind of human rights lawyer, and after communism fell, she became the first minister of justice of a free Czechoslovakia. So this turned out to be a life-defining moment for her. It made justice her mission in a way that ended up being compatible with national freedom and with human dignity when once communism was destroyed. But of course, the initial moments are a combination of euphoria and fear. As you say, she doesn't want to raise her children to be liars and to become complicit in something that she fears might ruin their souls. And there's something euphoric about telling the truth and standing up for the cause of justice. But at the same time, she's worried about what price they're going to have to pay for this. And of course, most of the story is trying to show you what the burden is, how hard it is to fight for justice in a society where nobody does this. This reminds me of one of Václav Havel's early plays, The Garden Party, where two Czechoslovak parents are worried about their young son. What future is he going to have? He doesn't really know what to do with his life. He should meet this important party person to maybe get ahead, you know, know the right people. And the boy is clever. He finds the important official and he very quickly in the play becomes so clever at talking in the lies and the jargon and the ideology of the party and the bureaucracy that by the end of the play he has become chief of an office in the communist regime in Czechoslovakia. In this really really absurd comedy you get this sense of what would it mean to raise your kids in a way that defines success by conformism to communist ideology? What if they believe it? What if they learn from your deeds, from your practices, from your complicity, and add a kind of desire to succeed, to make a life for themselves, to this conformism, and really end up believing in it? This boy at the end of the play returns home, his parents can't recognize him anymore. All of it in the space of an afternoon. Right. And this is the sort of thing that Dasha has on her mind. What will happen to these children if they see that we are complicit in anything, really, that we have no dignity? How will they believe in our authority then that we are some kind of model of justice and human dignity for them? Right. And the film also does a great job of showing how this concern with speeches and deeds and integrity in a way seems very abstract. And on any rational calculation, it makes more sense to make these minor compromises. 
And I think the film does a wonderful job of showing you these minor things that the regime might ask of you, which you could very easily shrug off and think of as not important. And these things would just enable you to live a pretty ordinary, decent life. There's a wonderful moment. This is near the end of the film where they're burning Pollock's body. And the man from the secret police is there supervising the funeral manager who is overseeing this process. And he hands him this clipboard. And he makes him sign this document that we presumably understand just must be something that authorizes the incineration of Pollock. And so you sort of think to yourself, well, why does it matter if the funeral manager signs this thing? Well, the answer is that the party wants everyone to be complicit at every moment in all of the actions that the party takes, right, to give it the veneer of legality. And so, well, does it make any sense for the funeral director to not sign this? I mean, he would probably lose his job. If he has kids, who knows what would happen to them? And so, well, why not sign? It's a meaningless piece of paper. It makes me continue with my life. And so there's lots of moments in the film that bring that home, too, and show you that, in a way, that's a much more rational response to one's circumstances than doing what Dasha does and actually deciding to take up this case that is bound to be fruitless. Yeah, and you can see how the actions of the few characters who want to pursue justice for Jan Palach force everybody else to decide where they stand. Will they betray these people? Will they betray common decency and serve the party or not? All of a sudden this becomes an urgent question as with the funeral director who tries to reason with Palach's family that the body has to be moved. It's becoming a problem that we have to play along because they can force us if we don't. We don't really have any kind of power here. And eventually talks himself into betraying any trust that might be laid in him. The communists want to destroy Palach's corpse so that he doesn't become a national symbol because already we are told people at night are jumping the fence into the cemetery and going to that burial ground, to that particular plot, because they know Jan Palach is some kind of martyr. It's some kind of ritual to pledge their faith and to remind themselves in secret at night that somebody stood up for human dignity in Prague. And so the party wants to destroy this, and this man ends up consenting to it because, you know, it's the reasonable thing to do. Why would you take a risk for this? And there are other people like that. The man who heads the law firm where Dasha works as a lawyer, he ends up betraying them in a certain way for his own private advantage. And again, you see that the party has many ways of corrupting you. What is at stake is whether you will consent to your own abuse by becoming complicit whether you can move from fear, from a reasonable concern for your own safety, to a slavish consent to being treated like an animal. Yeah, and some yeah I of think these that's people right. do. And of course, it's perfectly understandable. Most of us are not Jan Palach. But that's precisely what makes for the moral power of the story, why it's so driving and intense. It's a very well-told story that seeks to dramatize this question. How will people react? when human dignity becomes an urgent question in their own personal case and in practical decisions that affect other people whom they know and to whom they are bound by certain duties and rights. Yeah. And then the other side of this portrait of the communist regime, of course, is just how sadistic and petty people can be led to behave, right? And so the third episode 
is very hard to watch at certain points because the regime really cracks down on Pollock's mother and, of course, wants her to drop the libel case. And so they do things like call her in the middle of the night, you know, every 30 minutes to wake her up constantly. She picks up the phone and, you know, no one's on the other end. She works at a train station at a magazine stand. And so she goes to work one day and someone accidentally, I think, leaves a magazine on her counter and she opens the magazine. It turns out there are pictures of Jan Pollock's burned naked body in them, right? And so they literally try to drive her insane, really, to get her to drop the case, which she refuses to do. Yeah. And so I think the film police cars following her around. Yeah. Her lawyer Dasha also, her house is under surveillance. Right, constantly. So it just shows you, I think in a way, how easy it is to kind of turn people to evil. And before they know it, they can be participants in something pretty awful. And so I think that's another aspect of the film is really successful in bringing out about communism. And the counterpoint to this cruelty and debasement is the series of shows of nobility, both in people who have a bit of a heroic touch to them, like the lawyer Dasha, but also in people just at their everyday jobs, living their everyday lives, who don't want to be special or heroic or to attract public attention especially, but who feel morally bound at some points to help out as Dasha and her assistant go around trying to gather evidence to find something that they could publicize in court in order to make the case stick, in order to hold this slanderer and by extension the regime accountable in some way for the lies they're telling about the dead Jan Palach, they have to go places and meet people and try hard to get them to help. And so you see time after time, some people are helpful, some people pretend to be, but then become scared and refuse to help anymore. Some people want to help, but the regime stops them. And some people in furtive, secretive ways, as ashamed to tell the truth as they are of their fear of the regime, they help with all sorts of details that end up making the case legally sound. And it's quite thrilling to watch at the same time as it is sobering. And that's an unusual achievement. Like you said, it's a courtroom drama, but in a sense, the destiny of a nation is on the line. And that's very rare. Yeah, seeing the variety of witnesses that they're successful in tracking down and they're unsuccessful in in getting to agree to be interviewed for the trial, I think that gives you, like you say, almost a cross-section of the population and, you know, different reactions to being swept up in a case like this. I think that's right. And, you know, it's not a romanticization. It's not a demonization. It's really a kind of honest portrayal of how different people would have reacted to being put in this position. I guess the other thing that's nice about the film is the portrait of the marriage of Dasha and Radim when she decides that she wants to take the case. Initially, Radim is pretty furious and thinks, well, why the heck would you do that? And you see this marriage under strain. And then, you know, after they talk about it, uh, I alluded to their discussion about the daughters a few minutes ago. He comes around, and so I think he shows you, or rather Holland shows you, how a healthy marriage might be able to deal with the strain. But you can very easily imagine how such a strain would just break many, if not most, of these marriages and really divide families. Yeah, you do get to see the burden that this quest for justice places on people. It's most obvious with Palach's mother, who is broken physically and seems to stand only by her incredible moral courage 
at the end of the movie. And you see with her son, Jan's brother, who tries hard to fight that his brother would have a place in a cemetery, a Christian burial, and who is confronted with the enormity of what the regime is trying to do literally to destroy the corpse. And he has to face people who threaten him that they'll take his brother's corpse under cover of law and throw it in a mass grave somewhere never to be seen again. What will your mother do then? But of course also Dasha and Radim face their own threats, not just the surveillance. Radim loses his job because he is set up as an enemy of the regime. Yeah. He is put through a professional hearing because of his bourgeois anti-regime statements, which are fake. And he loses his job because of it and he has to find some kind of menial job somewhere that keeps him working at night so he never gets to see his wife and kids. And this, of course, as you said, puts quite a strain on their marriage, even though they do agree on what is morally right in this case. And you see more and more the burden that this places on real people, what it means to try to do justice in a case like this, and how the fate of a dead man, Jan Palach, requires so much sacrifice from living people. That's right. And the other thing I would emphasize about this question about family and strain, you mentioned earlier the head of the law office, Vladimir, his wife, we never see her because presumably she's in the West. She emigrated or left on vacation and never came back. We don't quite know. But she seems to have made the decision at some point to leave. And there's a strain that's put on the relationship between the daughter because obviously she wants to have some relationship to her mother, but she feels betrayed. And Vladimir is frustrated that the wife doesn't call enough. And so that's another angle on the strains such a regime puts on families. And then, of course, one solution to this that would not have been available to everyone, but certainly was a chance that was taken by some people, of course, is emigration. And so we see the honest cop from the initial episode. By the end of the second episode, he's going to, I think it's the Austrian border. And someone says to him, you know, have a nice vacation. But from the way that his car is packed, he's got his whole family. It's pretty obvious that he's just leaving. And so whether he was offered that or whether they're sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, you know, have a nice vacation, but they kind of know he's leaving. it, It doesn't really matter. But I think that's a nice touch by Holland, that this was the path that many, many, many people took in the aftermath of the Prague Spring. Yeah, we should say that after the Soviet invasion, but before the new authorities closed the border, some 300,000 people ran away. And you get to see there the disillusionment and desperation that was the flip side of the euphoria and enthusiasm of the Prague Spring. And in this case, you see this honest cop trying to not punish people, to let kids out with their posters, get away, not be sent to jail. He's trying to impose order while not hurting people and eventually realizes that this is not possible, that the communists don't intend to treat these people with any degree of forbearance. And he eventually abandons and then leaves for Austria as another touching and tense scene at the border. Now that we're talking about all these characters, it strikes me that one of the remarkable things about the film is the extent to which it gives you a portrait, I don't know, seven, eight, nine characters, all of whom have some real depth and are interesting and are not hollow in any way. You know, some of them are admirable and you have sympathies for them. Others turn out to be people who you revile. But the extent to which Holland pulls off giving you these portraits of a really broad range of people, I think, is remarkable. 
and the city itself is amazing. I would love, I don't have any familiarity with the um, sort of techniques of filmmaking and directing, but the portrait of the city Prague is kind of amazing. I don't know how she managed to give you a sense that you're watching Prague in the late 60s. If it's uh, computer-generated images or exactly what she did, she pulls it off. I've spent a lot of time in the city, and you know the Prague that you see in the movie is recognizable as Prague, but it looks like Prague from 50 years ago. So it's really incredible movie, technically, too. Yeah, it's strange how realistic it is. These are subjects you read about. You read the documents of the important people who fought for freedom in Czechoslovakia, But at the same time, you know that this story is doomed, that they can never win against the regime, that it will take another 20 years of slavery before the Czechoslovaks get their freedom. And nevertheless, you're both involved in the drama and in the lives of these people and the society they're part of, which comes alive in a remarkable way. Nine, ten years after the Prague Spring, Charter 77, the freedom movement started. It was a very simple, short document that appeals to the Helsinki Accords which USSR and Soviet states signed, guaranteeing civil and political rights, economic, cultural rights, and the Charter appeals to these rights, which exist only on paper, in order to show the crimes of the regime against the people and to ask for justice. And in this movie, you see exactly what they mean. Case by case, economic security, psychological terrorism, the loss of your livelihood or of your family, great things and small things. You see what exactly were Václav Havel and Václav Bendai and Patochka and all of them. What were they worried about and what did they want by way of justice? And it's a remarkable dramatization. Yeah, that's a good point. And maybe one more detail about the Prague Spring. One of the things that I neglected to mention, too, is that the Prague Spring led to the restoration of some big name professors like Jan Patochka. So Patochka was restored to his position as a professor of philosophy at Charles University, only to lose his position and to be forced into retirement during the normalization. And so after he was expelled from Charles University again, after the Prague Spring, he starts to give these underground seminars, which now you can get their transcriptions of some of the lectures that he gave in these seminars. And those lectures turned out to be quite formative for many of the leaders of the Charter 77 movement. And of course, Patochka was one of the first three spokespersons of the movement, but then died of a brain aneurysm after being interrogated, I think, for about eight hours a day for about a week in March of 1977. So that's another way in which the Prague Spring anticipates and leads to some of the important events leading up to the Charter movement in 77. I don't know any great movie about Charter 77, something that would do for the social and intellectual and political heroes of that movement, what Holland has done for the death of Jan Palach and its aftermath, but they are impressive moments. They show how in times of terror, human beings summon great virtues and do their best to stand up for human dignity in a way that counts. So I recommend this story. It's very impressive. You can stream it on Amazon or go to HBO and watch it. You will spend four hours immersed in this world and in the destinies of these people. Yeah, and the last scene I think it's worth mentioning, of course, is a scene that alludes to some of the events in January of 1989 when some of the leaders of the dissident movement, like Havel, organized a week to commemorate Pollock. 
And so in the last scene, you see some of these students who are putting up flyers that announce the existence of this Pollock Week, and they're being chased by police officers or maybe security officers in the metro in Prague, I'm not sure. But you see people who are going up the escalator in the metro and who are just either going to or from work, but almost to a person, they grab the flyer and they immediately put it in their pocket. And so there's this nod to the idea that these people, however much they're still nervous about about the regime, that they're hungry for something that acknowledges the significance of Jan Pollock's deed. And they, you know, want a piece of it and they want to put it in their pocket and keep it. And so that's another nice touch that Holland adds to the end of the film is the acknowledgement that Pollock's legacy did, in fact, live long after, despite the efforts of the regime to crush any mention of it and to um, really almost negate the memory of Pollock's act. Yeah, at the time, in 69, as later in 77, 78, when Patochka died, Benda and Havel were arrested, did jail for a couple of years, it seemed like the regime won. But eventually it was destroyed, and people had some memory and some struggles for freedom to give them a sense of their dignity and of how they should conduct their lives. And so also the importance of remembering the Prague Spring and with the events that led to the destruction of communist tyranny and a chance for people to live decent lives again. Yeah, it's an inspiring story. And I, yeah, I just hope that despite its length, people will go out and get this movie and watch it uh, because they will be, I think, rewarded far beyond their expectations. Again, I think it's a close second to the lives of others in its depth and greatness. And so, yeah, I just hope more people see the film. And it's a shame that the Academy Awards saw fit to uh, not allow it to be nominated because it had aired on Czech TV. It seems a rather silly detail, but I don't know how these things work. Yeah. Well, we're hoping to do something for the story to be remembered and the movie to get a new audience. Thanks for joining me again, Flag. It's great to talk like we did The Lives of Others, and we're going to talk about other movies that deal with the collapse of communism and the end of tyranny. Thanks again for joining me, and let's do this again soon. Yep, we'll do it again soon, and I look forward to it. We'll see you later. All the best. <laughs>